there are different uh, different diagnostic techniques that you you can use for different diseases, and depending on the stage of the disease, you should be uh, wise to which technique you should use to reach a diagnosis. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming soon. The brightest minds of the global poultry industry will be right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Adiseo, Protecta, DSM, and JVI. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Malash, your host for today's episode of the Poultry Podcast Show. Joining us today is Dr. Saad Gariba. He is a professor at the University of Minnesota's Department of Veterinary Population Medicine, as well as a poultry pathologist at the Minnesota Poultry Testing Laboratory in Wilmer, which is an extension of the University of Minnesota's Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory. Dr. Gariba, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, before we get started with our topics for today, just to give our listeners a little bit of background on your journey to becoming a, a poultry pathologist, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career? Yeah, um, actually, it's a, I like to tell this story. I, I grew up in, in Jordan, the Middle East, and my father was a, a, a chicken producer. So he has uh, or he had chicken farms then. Uh, so that's why I wanted to become a vet, and that's why I went to the vet school in Jordan. And then I realized that I don't have much of a poultry experience, so I wanted to get more specialized in poultry, and I uh, chose to go to the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia, and I got my uh, PhD working with uh, um, a significant virus at the time then, which was avian leukosis virus. In addition, I did my uh, pathology residency with the uh, veterinary pathology department there. So after getting my my degrees, I I worked for one year uh, with the university uh, with Clemson University in the diagnostic lab in Columbia, in South Carolina, and then I went back to Jordan for a few years. I worked in the university, Jordan University of Science and Technology. Uh, doing research, diagnostics, and teaching. Then I moved back to PDRC, to the University of Georgia, where I was uh, the avian histopathologist uh, with uh, another colleague of mine for a few years. Then moved back to Jordan, then moved back now to Minnesota. And I've been in Minnesota in the diagnostic lab mm -hmm. for five years, almost exactly today. Wow, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Quite a climate change. How do you feel about the Minnesota winters? Oh, wonderful in summer. <laughs> they can be yeah. challenging at times. Yeah, it is quite a change. I tell you that. I never realized that it can become this much cold anywhere. So yes. it is really cold in winter. So uh, working at the poultry testing laboratory, can you tell us a little bit about the history of that facility, uh, how it came to be, and what its role is in providing diagnostic uh, services to the poultry industry in Minnesota and the surrounding areas? Yeah. Actually, the service of the diagnostic lab, or the MPTL for short, it's Minnesota Poultry Testing Lab, um, 
it, it goes back tens of years ago uh, where the NPIP testing, which is National Poultry Improvement Plan testing, uh, is being done in Wilmar, which is in Kandiohi County, where the center of the poultry industry in the state is. Uh, at the time, um, the Board of Animal Health uh, Veterinarians used to supervise the testing, and the technicians who perform those testing are University of Minnesota employees. So it's actually a, a joint venture between the Board of Animal Health and uh, the University of Minnesota, uh, yeah. the Diagnostic Lab. Uh, over the years, they have moved from one location to another within Wilmer, but the dramatic change happened in uh, 2015 when we had the first major influenza outbreak, and then the Board of Animal Health and the University of Minnesota got um, good funding to expand the lab and the building. And now that we have the, the new building, which is almost at least three or four times the size uh, of the older building. Uh, and they added a, a necropsy room. So that's where they wanted a, a histo or a veterinary pathologist that do necropsy. So this is where I came five years ago. So I'm doing necropsies in the necropsy room. And then we're doing some poultry testing, specialized poultry testing in this same building. And other testing that we cannot perform over here, that's usually we consider as generalized testing like preparing the slides for histopathology or doing virus isolation or identifying um, certain types of bacteria, we send the samples to the BDL. So we have daily uh, transportation or carrier that goes back and forth between Wilmer and St. Paul to uh, move samples from us to them and then move samples from them to us. Uh, salmonella testing and culture is all being done at MPTL over here in Wilmer. So even if they, if they needed to do a salmonella ID on certain isolates, they send it to us. If they wanted to do serology for poultry or PCR for poultry, they send it to us. If we needed to do virus isolation, we send it to them. So it's kind of a, we do this very similar work, but we had divided the responsibilities. Wow, that seems like a very efficient way to handle that. It sounds it, it like is. you guys are really working on the forefront of some very challenging and very important areas in poultry health, um, salmonella and avian influenza. That's true. And it's very dynamic that we move back and forth. We communicate with, uh, with the diagnostic lab on a daily basis. Uh, uh, it's challenging, but at the same time, I think it's very fruitful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, we can see that in, in the way that handling these outbreaks has changed over the years from that devastating outbreak in, in 2015. You've seen the industry and academia and you know state services really coordinate better together to handle those outbreaks from early and earlier and earlier on during the, the process of an outbreak. And it's been very impressive to see how that's handled now, even though it was a, a challenging year this year as well. <laughs> It was, but it was less challenging as I, I wasn't here in 2015. And at the time, all of the testing was done at St. Paul. But this time, most of the testing is done over here in Wilmer, in our mm -hmm. lab at MPTL. Uh, certain testing was still being done at the VDL. 
especially samples from wild birds or uh, not wild birds, the raptor center. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So, you know, just as an example for our audience, could you kind of walk us through the timeline of a, a disease event? It might not necessarily be AI, but um, you know, how does that typically look when it occurs on a farm or on a group of farms? Um, at what point does the poultry testing laboratory get involved? When do the samples end up coming to you? And what is your role right. in, in diagnosing that outbreak? Well, this is a, a very good question. And I might not be able to cover everything because it's so diverse and there are many aspects to this question. And um, influenza is a, is a good example, but I will give maybe, a, I think it's a better example to give Newcastle disease. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because um, it adds more complicating factor, which that which is many many producers they do vaccinate against Newcastle. So how can you monitor if you have any Newcastle disease uh, outbreak? And before that, how can you monitor if your uh, birds or flock is immune to Newcastle disease? Mm-hmm. So. For any infectious process, including Newcastle disease, when the virus enters the one animal or enters the flock, it probably will infect one bird, starts with one bird. So from infection to development of clinical science, that's what we call incubation period. So that's the virus is replicating in the, in the animals or in the birds without producing any signs. Uh, and the infection is very only a few birds are infected. So even if you collect samples, you might not detect the infection, not seeing any clinical signs. And even if you do some testing, you're not detecting the infection. Uh, so sometimes you might need to start seeing the clinical signs to get a positive test result. So if you want to test for an acute infection that's very active, the birds are, so, are starting to show in clinical signs you should choose a correct diagnostic procedure. Now is the time to find either the virus or find part of the virus. So you either do virus isolation or do a faster test, which is PCR. PCR will detect the nucleic acid of the virus. And for those samples, you don't take blood, you take what we call oropharyngeal swabs. So it's a swab material that you put it in the mouth of the bird, try to get to the larynx or to the what we call a quenal clift, which is a slit at the roof of the mouth. So you get some respiratory secretions, and those respiratory secretions, you look for the virus for it. However, if you are kind of late reporting to the diagnostic lab and you want to test for it, maybe two weeks after the clinical signs started or faded, then if you do the PCR, the virus might be gone by, by now. You need to, do, to use a, a different test. So you use a serological test like ELISA, which you detect antibodies against Newcastle disease. And there are other testing age, uh, testing procedures like hemagglutination inhibition, especially for Newcastle, and some other tests like for, uh, for other disease like influenza. So whether you use ELISA or hemagglutination inhibition, you detect antibodies against the agent. Now, the complicating issue is well, you have probably, as a producer, you have vaccinated against Newcastle disease. So you probably have antibodies against Newcastle disease without the infection. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. so how can you differentiate this titer that you get for antibodies? Is it infection or is it uh, from the vaccine? So there comes the the good practice of producers or veterinarians that they should know their baseline data for titers. So you know that if you have turkeys at 15 weeks of age and you used your routine vaccination program, that by 10 weeks of age, you should have a titer of 4,000. So if you get that titer to be, for example, 12,000, that's abnormal for you. So this is outside your baseline data that or baseline information that you have. So that helps uh, interpret the serological results more accurate. Mm -hmm. And again, there are different uh, different diagnostic techniques that you, you can use for different diseases. And depending on the stage of the disease, you should be uh, wise to which technique you should use to reach a diagnosis. Hmm. So... I would guess that the majority of your samples are probably routed through at least some veterinarian, uh, you know, influence, uh, someone who would know the proper samples and the proper tests to request. However, there is a large percentage of, you know, backyard producers, smaller flock producers that may not be working in conjunction with the veterinarian. Do you typically see samples from those type of flocks? And if so, what resources are available to them to help in the decision of, of what samples to take and what tests to request? That's very true. And sometimes we, those uh, either uh, backyard producers or even small commercial producers, they don't have a uh, veterinarian working for them. Rather, they sometimes rely on uh, their local vet. And many of the local vets don't have enough poultry experience to know the details of all of the things that we work with, which is which is normal. Uh, so we do receive calls from them, and the, we we consult with them over the phone. Um, for example, a back, backyard producer thinks that they have mycoplasma. We will direct them how to take the swabs and how to send those swabs to us. But if they want to test for a disease similar to Merrick's disease, for example, Mm. Um, swabs are not are no good for diagnosing this disease. They yes. need to send us either the, the whole carcass for necropsy or they need to consult with their local veterinarian to collect certain tissues and formalin for histopathological evaluation. So we do communicate with our clients and uh, our phone lines are open during business hours. It's a very important service given that sometimes backyard flocks can be harbors for poultry pathogens that are routinely monitored in industry, but not necessarily so by smaller producers or backyard hobbyists. So that is a very valuable uh, service that you guys are providing by both educating and providing them with diagnostic laboratories that they can send samples to. Yeah. Uh, in addition to that, uh, at MPTL, we also have our colleagues from the Minnesota Board of Animal Health who work in the same building with us. And um, for the Board of Animal Health, for the poultry programs, if they, if I suspect or if they get a phone call from a, a backyard producer with uh, alarming signs, for example, increased mortality, they will take over that case and they will say, go ahead and submit that, we will pay for it. Hmm. So, and, 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 if they submit that case, they usually require us to test for Newcastle influenza and other diseases that threaten the commercial industry. So 
uh, it's true that backyard producers uh, sometimes are they don't have the capabilities of the commercial uh, companies but the board of animal health sometimes they cover their testing mm. and it, it's a good surveillance strategy to keep an eye on uh, diseases even in the backyard uh, community absolutely producers. yeah absolutely it's in everyone's everyone's interest to kind of keep an eye on all of these different pathogens absolutely yes so Although we'd like to imagine that every sample that arrives at your doorstep is perfectly labeled and perfectly collected and perfectly packaged, um, I think we all know that that's not necessarily the case. Do you have any uh, specific areas where you commonly see issues with either sample collection, sample labeling, um, you know, sample handling on the way to the lab uh, that negatively impact the results that you can determine from that sort of sample? Yeah, that, that happens very often, and every time it happens, we try to find ways um, to prevent that in the future, or at least to uh, decrease the chance of that happening again. So our submission forms are uh, detailed, and we try to make it uh, easy to follow that, to know what kind of testing to require. So it's a checkbox uh, for producers or for veterinarians to submit samples. and if the if the sample doesn't match the testing that's requested, for example, a, a blood sample was sent to us and they're requiring PCR for Newcastle. Usually that's not, that's not the right sample type for Newcastle PCR. So we call them back. So our receiving department, they do a good job in, in calling back the customers and the clients and asking exactly what kind of testing they requested. Uh, but of course, I mean, it, it happens that things when, are, when they are shipped, uh, they might get stuck over the weekend. The sample might, mm. the sample quality might deteriorate, and because we are accredited, accredited lab with the NPIP and the uh, AVLD, uh, certain tests that we will probably not perform on a deteriorated sample, and we will require new sample for, especially with a high impact disease, we need the sample to be properly collected and properly transported. Mm -hmm. Very understandable. We we struggle with the same things on the feed side, especially when it's hot outside. Right. And samples get left in a car or elsewhere. Yeah, it happens. So it can really reduce the amount of information you can get out of a sample, for sure. Um, is there uh, any outreach programs in which you work with producers to help them kind of build their baseline knowledge of poultry diagnostics that you'd like to talk about? Or um, what what other functions does the poultry testing laboratory perform? Uh, we have something which I really like that we almost have a, a monthly meeting for poultry veterinarians in Minnesota. Uh, we either meet in person. We used to meet in the building before the COVID starts, but now we're making it Zoom meetings. So we kind of exchange the information about what kind of disease there are in the field or what kind of disease we are seeing in the diagnostic lab, uh, what our what our research uh, needs are and so that group is a is a good group that can discuss um, like strategic planning in addition to current situation and disease status of the Minnesota poultry. Excellent. That sounds like a wonderful opportunity to exchange information. Um, 
I believe you, you had uh, mentioned, you know, finding the, the right type of test, especially if you're looking for multiple diseases at once. Um, one thing I noticed on the website for the poultry testing laboratory was panel testing. That's not something with which I'm familiar. Could you speak a little bit about that and the advantages that it might have in certain situations? Yeah, the, the panel testing is an idea that we discussed with uh, our lab manager, uh, Stacey Pollock. Um, sometimes small producers or backyard uh, producers don't have the knowledge of what kind of testing they should order. And they think that they have respiratory disease, for example, and they think mycoplasma is the only thing that's causing respiratory disease. So what we did is uh, we made, we collected a group of diseases that might, that are very common in Minnesota that usually we encounter when we are investigating a respiratory disease. We made one for chickens, one for turkeys, and we called it uh, a panel one, turkey panel one or chicken panel one. And usually it's like a respiratory disease panel. So we look for the most common respiratory disease uh, we see in Minnesota. And that made it easier for the clients. So if they have a respiratory disease, they know which box to check. And it made it uh, more useful to us. It, it gives us more information to judge on what kind of uh, disease they have. It's not only, we're not lo only looking for something that, that they suspected, but we're looking for the common diseases that we see in the field. So that's what we call panel testing. It's more than one disease testing in, in one box to check, and it's kind of discounted price because they choose more than one test. So that's panel testing. That seems like a great tool, especially when working with some limited information um, on the side of the producer. Very cool. Yeah, we find it very useful, and uh, our producers, they like it. Very cool. So turning now to some of the seasonal outbreaks that we seem to see coming back year after year, I wanted to see if you had any thoughts about trends that are occurring or what you're seeing over time with, you know, seasonal recurring issues like avian influenza. Um, is it gradually becoming more or less manageable over time? Have things changed since we've all become uh, much more knowledgeable on the human epidemiology side of things due to recent events? Are people more or less cognizant of biosecurity because they're, they're burnt out on that side of things? Um, in your opinion, what's kind of the, the state of AI right now? It's, it's very hard to speculate when is the next outbreak is going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, but we know it, it probably will happen again. The idea is to be more prepared uh, to, to handle uh, the situation better every time. Uh, one thing is that on the producers or on the companies is, is to improve their biosecurity. So to, to decrease the chance of their flocks getting infected, and if they do get infected, to decrease the chance of their infected flocks to transmit the infection to neighboring farms. Uh, so that's on their side. And, uh, and I think they did a better job this time compared to 2015. Biosecurity status is, it shows that it is better than previously uh, how previously it was. On the other hand, for the diagnostic lab, we have made uh, several contingency plans on how to test, build our stockpile of testing agents, uh, having enough uh, testing kit material or swabs, and and we have made programs for our technicians how to they can um, cover the testing that we need. 
so we tested more often during the outbreak uh, we opened more hours during the day and we opened over the weekends so that kind of took some planning on our side and the big job was for the board of animal health to organize all of that where they transport samples or direct samples to be directed to this lab and then move the samples after initial diagnosis for confirmatory testing at uh, the National Veterinary Service Laboratory in Ames, Iowa. Um, so with practice, <laughs> it, maybe it's not thing, a good thing to say, but we, we had a good experience in 2015 that really benefited most of us on how to better handle this outbreak. And the impact, it seems to be uh, less severe this time although that looks like the outbreak is more pathogenic and more, uh, it's a different virus this time. Mm -hmm. uh, so the impact, it seems to be less than it was five years ago. So that's a good thing. That is a very, very good thing. Uh, one consequence sometimes, however, of, of things improving uh, is that people can become somewhat lax, uh, particularly on the biosecurity side, uh, even between outbreaks, as well as if there hasn't been a, a significantly devastating outbreak for a, a year or more, sometimes you see people start to become a little bit more relaxed. Uh, if there were, you know, a few things that are top of mind that people should um, really continue to focus on, either biosecurity or surveillance-wise, what would those be in your mind? Yeah, it's, uh, I understand that people get tired after a period of time and uh, we all do but for biosecurity it's, it's a collective effort and it's a collection of things that you do and it's one of the th those things that you cannot succeed by 80 percent you have to be 100 percent mm -hmm. accurate on everything um, so I, I really recommend that they keep their guard not only for influenza because there are other poultry disease that also have economical impact uh, on their uh, farms and flocks. So it's, it's, it's a habit. Most of us, I mean, when you go home, before you eat, you wash your hands. When you, so once you get used to these things, you don't think about it anymore. You just do it. So this mm -hmm. at least keep the basic biosecurity practices, uh, the good separation between non-infected and diseased uh, areas or contaminated areas. Uh, if they keep that, it becomes uh, a good practice that is kind of built into their technique and they don't think about it, they just do it. So it, it's always good to have the guard for biosecurity. Mm -hmm. Certainly, making it a habit makes it a lot uh, easier to follow. Um, oftentimes, you know, looking at the epidemiological tracing for specific outbreak events. Sometimes you don't find any smoking gun at all. You can't find any specific biosecurity failure that you know allowed for that pathogen to enter a house, enter a barn. Um, and sometimes you find that there was a lapse and oftentimes those lapses are when things are not habitual or not routine. So a common example that I've heard and seen is um, bringing in external labor to a farm to cover a gap in labor. Um, that's something we're seeing more and more frequently now due to labor shortages across the country. Um, is, there, if, is there anything specific you can recommend to help address bringing in temporary 
or uh, new hire labor or vacation coverage labor to make sure that they understand the gravity of the situation with biosecurity um, because they don't have the time to make it a habit. Yeah, it's, it's very hard for me to comment on that because uh, I'm not working in the industry at this time. Mm -hmm. And I understand from my colleagues is that they have uh, very limitation on, on, on their labor. So sometimes even though what we, but they know that it is not a good practice for biosecurity, sometimes they have no choice. They have to move the birds or do something. So I understand there are uh, certain limitations and I leave it for them to decide. But as you said, you probably understand the, the the significance or impact of this. So they should keep that in mind when they make that decision. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I mean, if the birds are kind of stuck in the in the barn for some time and they need to be moved to the plant and they're kind of suffering. So all of these things have to be weighed in when you make that decision. And I'm, I'm not the decision maker on that. So I leave it for That's them. That's fair. <laughs> very, very fair. Um, yeah, I guess. Is there anything else that you'd like to, to sum up or add to the discussion today? Uh, I did write some notes. Let me see if I have something to add. I want to stress the point to, to for the producers to build their baseline information or data. And that is usually for serological testing. Serological testing is, is very limited will give very limited information if you don't know what's your normal titers, what you get uh, when you test your birds at four weeks of age or at 10 weeks of age or when they go to the plant, what kind of titers you have for Newcastle, for influenza, for other poultry disease. So once you have an, any signs that you don't like, such as increased mortality, decreased production, so if you test them for serology, and you notice any deviation from those titers, that gives you an indication that you might have an exposure that you haven't detected, and you might mm -hmm. take steps to prevent it in the future. At the same time, many of the producers and farms, they vaccinate against certain poultry diseases. So if you vaccinate, you don't have, uh, and you don't have your baseline data to judge your vaccination program, was my vaccination program effective or not? Did I reach those titers that I needed or not? At the same time, if the vaccine went bad for transportation problem, for example, or for example, you have new workers and they applied the vaccine and you don't, you're not sure that they have applied it in the right way. If you have that information, you can judge your vaccination um, status. Was it successful or not? So it's both for disease diagnostics and for maintaining the immunity that you need after immunization. Uh, so I really recommend all farms to have and start building their baseline data for serology. It's a good tool. That makes a That's lot of sense. It sounds yeah. like they will derive a lot more value out of their diagnostic samples if they just invest up front in a surveillance program. Exactly. Exactly right. Very good information. It's time for our famous three. Well, looking at our time, I think I'd like to wrap up by asking you a handful of questions that we like to ask each guest. 
the first of which, what is your uh, favorite poultry-related book or resource? It could be a website, podcast, uh, anything that you turn to as a source of information in poultry pathology. Well, I have two books, and I usually have in my office. It's uh, and I recommend for students and people who are interested in poultry. Diseases of poultry. Excellent. Yeah, this is a good book. So that's my favorite book for poultry disease. It has most of the information that you need for what samples to collect, what kind of clinical signs you expect, and the limitation of the diagnostic techniques. So it's a good book for people who need to work with poultry. Great. Sounds like I need to get a copy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as far as you know, books or resources outside of poultry on any topic, is there something you'd like to recommend? I use I use PubMed. I use scientific mm -hmm. journals. So reading abstracts, if you read more than one abstract on a certain topic, you kind of collect more information. You get multi-angle view of the of the disease that you're looking at. You're looking at. So PubMed, PubMed I use is it a, a lot. great resource. Yeah, that's a great recommendation. And then lastly, if you think about someone in your life who you'd characterize as successful, and that can be by whatever definition of success you personally believe in, what do you think a, a quality or a personality trait that person has uh, is that helped them to be successful? Uh, open up your mind. Mm. And the other thing that many people they kind of encourage you to think outside the box. Sometimes it's usual. Sometimes it's good to think within the box. If you see something strange, go to the basics. Know that, for example, that if you see, let me give you an example. If you see certain diseases like crop mycosis, respiratory disease, more implications, it's been known for a long period of time. These are signs of immunosuppressed flock. So go to the basics. Don't think about you have a new pathogen of fungus in the feed that's causing crop mycosis and it's fungus in the air causing respiratory disease. Go to the basics, sometimes going back to the basics. Uh, so be smart, use your mind, use your intelligent intelligence. And if you get stuck, go back to the basics. Mm. Maybe it's, 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 it's a different recommendation than many people will require people to think outside the box. I'd say, go back to the box, think <laughs> inside the box. <laughs> Sometimes what's inside the box is good. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gariba. We really, really appreciate you being with us on the Poultry Podcast Show. Uh, we'd love to have you back sometime for a deeper dive on uh, checking titers and having a surveillance program sure. on serology. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. You too.